Hi everyone, this is Ida Josefina and you're listening to Reverb by Sane. Not much housekeeping today. Want to thank everyone again for the response on our beta launch. I'm super happy to see a community forming around this and the type of thought spaces you all are building and sharing with us. For those of you new or unfamiliar to what we're doing at Sane, we've built a tool that allows people to collect, connect, and share ideas all in one place. You can check it out and have a play around at Sane.fyi with the first thousand users getting Sane free for one year. But now for today's episode, I'm excited to share that I'm speaking with Anne-Laure Lecomte. Anne-Laure is the founder of Nest Labs, where she helps knowledge workers achieve more without sacrificing their mental health. And she's also a PhD researcher at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, where she studies how different brains learn differently. She is a former Googler, a member of the Society for Neuroscience and an advisor to the Applied Neuroscience Association. Her work has been featured in Wired, Rolling Stone, Forbes, and more. In this episode, Anne-Laure and I have a very nice, comforting, and inspiring chat about learning in public, mindful productivity, our own experiences with productivity, work, life, etc. We talk about combinational creativity, also known as idea sex, and a lot more. This was super nice, felt more like a chat with a friend over a glass of wine, which is great. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Now I bring you Anne-Laure Lecomte. Well, I'm here with Anne-Laure Lecomte today. Welcome, Anne-Laure. I'm very happy to be speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me, Ida. Of course. Um, you're currently in Paris, right? I'm in London, actually. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. You live in London. Yeah, I do live in London. I'm from Paris, though. Nice. Um, may, well, maybe we could start with that, talking a bit about, you know, yourself, your life, your background. Do you want to give a brief a summary of that? And then we could go into chatting through some of your points of interest in the work that you're doing. Absolutely. So, yeah, as I just mentioned, I'm originally from Paris. My dad is French. My mom is Algerian. I grew up in a very noisy house, and uh, I think that maybe that made me a really good uh, reader, and I have a really good ability to focus even when things are very noisy around me. So I grew up reading lots of books in the middle of the chaos that was my house, and um, I uh, did my studies in France. Started working at Google after university in London, then moved to San Francisco. And I left my job at Google a few years ago to work on a startup, which didn't work out for lots of different reasons. And after that, I was completely lost because, I mean, you work in tech and you've worked in tech for a while. So you know that this is kind of the expected career journey. Work at one of yep. the big tech companies and then do a startup. And so when that didn't work out, I didn't really know what next to do. And... I decided to go back to the drawing board and I asked myself, what is something that I would love to keep on learning about, even if there was no money involved, uh, even if there was um, you know, no incentive, just learning for the sake of learning, for the joy of learning. And I've always been fascinated with how the brain works. So at the ripe age of 28, I went back to school to study neuroscience. I did my master's in London and this is when I started my current company, which is called Nest Labs. I didn't start it in the shape and form that it has today. It started as a little newsletter that I was writing every week to kind and consolidate everything I was learning at university about neuroscience. So every week I would 
send um, a little article that was about something I learned and how it could be applied to people's lives and work. And that kind of took off. Thousands of people signed up and I realized that first, this, is, this was something I really enjoyed doing. And second, it could be a business. So that was the beginning of my current company, Nest Labs, which now has still has the newsletter. That's still the core thing that I, I do. I write every week. We also have a private community with also thousands of people. And we basically teach knowledge workers how to make the most of their brains, the most of their minds, how to achieve their ambitions without sacrificing their mental health. And in parallel, because yeah. if that was not enough things I really don't know what I'm doing why I'm doing this to myself but I started doing a PhD last year in neuroscience as well so I'm currently doing a part-time PhD and running that company Nest Labs incredible <laughs> there's actually a few things to unpick there first I want to ask you when you when you when you you know did the startup and after that ask yourself the question of like what what is it that I'm really interested in if I had the time and space and resources just to learn about something that really fascinates you what kind of process was that in finding out that neuroscience is the thing that rings true to you it was the same process that I still use to this day I've always used whenever I try to figure out something about my thoughts or my emotions or my desires uh, or any kind of question that I have and it's writing. I, I use writing as a thinking tool. Journaling in particular has always been really helpful for me. So I wrote, I don't know how many pages at the time, but it was really about this internal exploration, this self-reflection, kind of practicing metacognition where you're really thinking about thinking and asking yourself, Okay, I'm thinking this, but why am I thinking this? Let's unpack that. Let's go back to yeah. why am I interested in this? And I realized that there were some interests that I had, but that maybe were coming more from a need from, for external validation. Um, I know, for example, when I was a kid, like one of my dreams, I wanted to be either a paleontologist or an actress. And once you you grow up and you become a bit better at digging into the why you feel a certain way or you want certain things, it became pretty clear that the paleontologist uh, dream was something that was based on intrinsic motivation. I just love dinosaurs. Yeah. Whereas the dream of being an actress was probably motivated by something else, by the need for, again, external validation. So that was the same here. I tried to look at everything I was interested in and I really tried to ask why and then why that and then why that up until you get to the point where you know that the why is, oh, because I actually genuinely care about this topic because I'm genuinely curious about it, even if you remove any kind of external motivation around it. Yeah, and that uh, that's very interesting and probably relates somewhat with your experience in starting a business first in the format of like maybe a more, you know, traditional stereotypical idea of what a startup is um, versus then what Nest Labs actually grew to become, um, which is kind of interesting also as a topic considering what's currently happening in the world and in the market and within the, within the VC space. Um, it's a I've, it's something that I've had to think a lot about as well. It's like, what kind of business do I want to build it and build? How do I want to build it? And how much of sort of like external, external, I don't know, motivations or ideas or influence is actually, you know, 
influencing the decisions and the type of direction that you're trying to go with any given thing, even if you know like the topic itself that you're touching on, right? Absolutely. Yeah, this is fascinating. And I, I think what's really important here is to still be very open to external influences because there's absolutely no way that when it comes to knowledge building, inspiration, all of that, that that's just going to happen in isolation in your own mind. All learning, all discovery, all innovation comes from collaboration between different minds. But I do think that in terms of getting started at the very beginning and choosing something, a mission that you care about and that you want to work on as much as possible, it's really good if it is something that you deeply believe in to a point where if nobody around you believes in it anymore, you still keep going. And this is where you see really good discoveries being made or, or really good companies being built because any company, any kind of ambitious project is going to have some ups and downs. There are going to be moments that are extremely difficult and you do need yeah. to be able to rely on that internal motivation to keep going when the external world is not giving you any positive signs. So yeah. I think you need both, right? You need that internal motivation, but you need to stay open enough to also be able to collaborate and learn from other people. Of course, yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, as a as a founder, or eventually as a CEO, then the job is also about assembling teams and, and making sure that people are able to collaborate. So in that sense, um, I, I would like to go back to you, you mentioning um, you're doing a PhD and you're kind of having one foot in academia and the other one in industry or building things. But maybe we could table that for a bit later and talk about learning in public since that's kind of like the direction we're also going in, into with the with the conversation. I know you've spoken a lot about this topic. So do you want to maybe open up what learning in public means to you, how you define it and any thoughts around that. Absolutely. Um, I define learning in public as sharing your process and your challenges rather than just the final product of what you're learning. So it's, it's basically kind of becoming a documentarian of what you do and your learning process. Um, so that's like, that's basically the, the basic of it. And it can, it can take a lot of different forms. So you know how you're super happy when you find a tutorial that's exactly what you were looking for and you're really grateful for whoever wrote it. It turns out that you can actually improve your own learning process and help future learners at the same time by documenting what you learn, by becoming one of these people, these generous people who are both students and teachers, including your challenges and the solutions that you implemented into anything that you're sharing publicly. So to me, this is what learning in public is. And again, it can take this form. It can be a more formal way of doing it, like doing a tutorial, but not only that. It could be asking questions on Twitter, posting screenshots of your progress, sharing your challenges. There's lots of ways to, to do it. So it's it's a bit similar to the Silicon Valley idea of working with the garage door open, but applied to learning and education. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of anything also, because I really feel like this podcast that I do is very much that. <laughs> um, because it's yes. also a process of learning how to interview and, um, you know, even just learning how to identify um, the right kind of guests. And, and then being able to kind of like structure conversations and be able to pick out knowledge that you can transmit to people. Um, but also, um, yeah, it can be a bit intimidating at times. <laughs> no, I agree with you. And you're, 
literally by having these conversations and recording them and posting them online, you are learning in public. You don't know what the answers to the questions you're asking are going to be in these conversations. So uh, yeah. this is yeah a very public way of learning. And this is also very meta because we're talking about learning in public while in a conversation <laughs> that is a method for learning in public. So you can yes. easily get very mixed into the idea. Um, so you you write the you write the newsletters the Nest Labs newsletter. Um, what other what other mechanisms do you have for learning in public? Yeah, so I constantly share ideas on Twitter. You'll see me asking questions. I very often incorporate some of the the answers that I get to these questions into the articles that I publish on my website and that I share through my newsletter afterwards. I'm also part of several Telegram groups where I'm discussing ideas and learning alongside other people on different topics like digital gardening, entrepreneurship, etc. Um, and I also very often ask questions to my newsletter subscribers directly, which has been really helpful in creating content and learning new things. Um, and yeah, I just mentioned digital gardening, but I also have my own digital garden where I share my notes. Uh, so this is, those are not completely raw notes. Like I have very raw ones that I keep in. I use Rome research for, for this. Um, but then I have my own one that I, I coded myself uh, that has, it's not enough to be a blog post yet, but it's not a raw note either. It's an in-progress note. It's a bit of a seed of an idea that I just mm. put into the world and that's been really, really helpful for me to also get feedback on and then go back to it and flesh it out a little bit more or connecting it to another idea that I didn't even think would be related. Um, so, yeah, digital gardening has also been a really good way for me to practice learning in public. Yeah. Um, another topic that uh, I have understood is very close to your heart is um, productivity and specifically mindful productivity. So... I'd love to talk a bit about productivity in general. What are your ideas about our relationship with productivity? Um, so something I find quite interesting is that mindfulness and productivity have kind of always been seen as two antithetic terms, right? Because productivity is really more about the output. Uh, mindfulness is really about being present in the moment. And so those are two things that don't seem to be very compatible. But I do think that they are, and I've been practicing mindful productivity for quite a few years now, and it's been really good for me and for other people who have been doing it, um, rather than a rigid uh, kind of like set of rules and methods, it's more of a mindset and general principles to apply to the way you work. So I would define it as being consciously present in what you're doing while you're doing it in conjunction with managing your mental and emotional states. So instead of just plowing through your work and grinding, it's really about taking the time to understand what you think, how you feel, how maybe these could be improved and taking that into account in the way you work and the decisions that you're making, uh, even sometimes in the people you decide to work with. Um, so I do think that in this way, by applying some of the principles from mindfulness, such as calmly acknowledging and accepting your thoughts and your feelings when you're engaged in work and creative activities, you can actually end up being more productive. Yeah. 
I um, I think I think we had I think we talked about this earlier when we had a conversation some weeks ago already. But I I um, last autumn I was staying at my grandmother's house in Lapland um, for two months with my with my partner, my grandmother, and myself. And it's in Lapland, Finland, in the middle of nowhere. And I was also going through a process of therapy. I've been going to therapy for a while. And um, and I told my therapist that I'm like I'm super like. I just can't concentrate at work. I can't. I can't do the things I need to do. And she was just like, "Why don't you only work four hours a day?" And I thought that was insane because you know who how, who works four hours a day? That sounds completely crazy to me. But um, after maybe like one or two weeks of her um, suggesting that that's what I do, I tried it, and I was completely like, it changed my life. Like I've tried to stick to this idea of working about four hours a day because I can get like about three times more work done a week if I work four hours a day versus eight hours or nine hours or 10 hours. Obviously it's not super rigid. It's not that I only work four hours every day. Sometimes I do work 12 hours days, but the idea of like having inside myself in my heart, knowing that four hours of work per day is where I'm at my best. It makes me feel free. It makes me feel like creative. It makes me feel liberated to be able to do other things and to be able to read and to reflect and think about how that works with my, you know, job, with my work and to actually be more creative and be able to, um, at the end, actually produce more, even though that's not really the idea of it. Um, I suppose that's mindful, mindful productivity. No, yeah, it's absolutely. kind of a very personal It's interesting because the, even the, the number of hours is, that's something I wrote about on my website. Really? Yes, for hours. There's actually a study that's uh, showing so what they did I haven't read that study in quite a long time um, so whoever is listening to this if you're listening to it go and read it for yourself I always advocate for it go and check your sources but um, <laughs> so um, if I remember correctly what they did is that they looked at the, um, the output the productivity of researchers in a university and they looked at the number of hours that they were working and the peak no, the peak productivity levels were at four hours so once people who were working more than that were not more productive than the people yeah. who were at four hours. And under four hours, they were also less productive because probably not enough hours to get as much work done. And because of that, something I really recommend for people to do, because I'm also trying to be cognizant of the fact that not everyone has the freedom to decide exactly how many hours they can be at work. There are still, unfortunately, yeah. a lot of people who work at companies where you have to be there at nine and you have to leave at five. So if that's the case, what I re recommend is to still do four hours. So what you can do, actually, is that you can only do around four hours of deep, focused, creative work. So anything that is actually requiring a lot of mental effort, a lot of intellectual engagement, you can do four hours of that. And for some people, it's better to do it uh, in the morning, the whole eat the frog approach for other people. It's better to do it at the end of the day. Whatever works yeah. better for you, that's completely fine. And the, the rest of the hours you can use for reading, for inspiration, for maybe having conversations with colleagues. And I'm not talking about the boring meetings where you're sitting through them and wondering why you're here because that should not exactly. be a meeting. But I'm talking about maybe taking a walk with a, a colleague and discussing some ideas that you you have. Um, so anything that is more about, and you, you, you did say, say it yourself, right? But it, it's, it's really about remembering that for any kind of quality, uh, 
quality creative output, you do need quality input. And so you do need to make the space to recharging kind of like your creative fuel, whether it's with reading, listening to podcasts, good conversations, all of that. You also need all of that. And then the four hours where you're actually in output mode, you are actually going to be more creative and more productive than if you were trying to force yourself to work really hard over the course of the whole day. Yeah, for sure. Oh, so what do you think about um, this sort of like productivity? I don't I don't know what you call it. like the productivity industry, you know, like all of this like talk, whether it's just like talk or conversation and then all of the tools that are built for productivity and all of the ideas that companies or organizations try to uphold in terms of productivity. Like what's your general opinion of that all? Do you think it makes people do you think it's a, like what part of that is effective? What do you think is complete bullshit? And um, and yeah, uh, I don't know what else to expand on there. I think we have a very outdated approach to productivity that is still based on Fordism and on working in factories where measuring productivity in terms of quantity of output made sense because that was the, yeah. um, that was the, the economic unit that you were using to know if the business was sustainable or not. But for knowledge workers, that makes no sense because it's not about producing more. It's about producing quality output. You're not going to judge the quality of a piece of software based on the number of lines of code it has. It's mm -hmm. really more about is it working or not? Is it giving people a good experience? And this is not something that you can measure in terms of number of lines of code or number of hours that the engineers spend working on it. You'd actually rather argue that I would better work with someone who can solve the exact same problem uh, with fewer lines of codes or 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 with or taking less time to do it, right? If they can do it in one day rather than three weeks, I'd rather probably work with this person. Um, so I think a lot of the, the systems that we've built and the, the measures that we're using are actually not adapted to knowledge work. Um, I also think that there are lots of people who are preying onto people desire uh, for, which is completely normal, but for personal growth, for achievement, for doing meaningful things in their lives. And this is why you see a lot of self-help books that I put into the toxic productivity category, uh, selling yeah. people dreams of being able to do, to achieve unrealistic goals, because these people, the author very often has had exceptional success and what they don't admit is that they've had that exceptional success based on a combination of lots of things there was a bit of luck there was probably a bit of money a bit more money involved than the regular person would have access to maybe a really good network a combination of lots of different things and yes of course productivity work ethics all of that right but that's not the only thing that made them successful but what these authors do afterwards is that they reverse engineer a productivity method and sell it mm. to people saying that that's that method that made them successful, which there's no other way to put it, but is complete bullshit, is a lie, in, in <laughs> most cases is a lie. I really don't know of any successful entrepreneur or academic that created a method and used that to become successful, but it's very easy afterwards to say that, that those were the exact steps that you took and to pretend that this is a recipe that people can apply and and basically lie to them, telling them that you're going to get the same results if you follow the same steps. 
And then people buy these books, they try to apply these productivity methods, they don't get the same results. And what do they no. think? Most of them, if you ask them, and I know that because I talk a lot with the readers of my newsletter, they don't think that it's because the productivity method is bullshit. They think that they did something wrong, that probably they didn't follow the steps properly because, you know, they have a kid, they have a very demanding job, and so they really struggle, they're tired. And they see that as a failure of the self, as something that they did wrong, rather as a failure of the productivity method itself. So... This is basically what I think about a lot of things that are happening in the in the productivity space at the moment. Um, that being said, I do think that there are also lots of really good things happening. There are tools, more and more tools that are being created, and they are really trying to be aware of these problems. And that instead of making people spend more time optimizing their productivity or trying to get out of the way and to really help people focus on what really matters, which is their creativity, building inspiration, growing their knowledge, fostering connections, getting new ideas, all of these things that actually matter. And I know there are tools that are working on that and where the founders are that focused on doing that and not on making people spend more time tinkering with a productivity tool at the expense of their productivity. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, I mean, saying is that, right? Like we're, um, hopefully we've launched by the time that this episode comes out, but like we've, I have never used the word productivity. Um, the pro word productivity has never come to my head, <laughs> my attention, uh, nor my co-founders when we've been thinking about um, building Sane because it's really been more about like letting people um, create and feel not feel anxious while they're creating or, you know, creating connections or thinking of ideas, asking questions. And I don't, I, I would never even associate that with the idea of productivity because it's, it's more about mindfulness and it's more about creativity and it's more about, um, yeah, I, I guess like the word even produce feels a little bit like far-fetched. So it's a really like weird kind of space also because the word productivity, like at least for me, has an immediate connotation of being like, some kind of self-help schema and on from just personal experience as well like thinking I've like I once did an interview where people are like what's your like how do you like work what do you what do you do and at that time I was waking up every single morning at 5 30 in the morning and starting to work and working 12 13 hours a day and then doing nothing except for eating like a shitty dinner and you know mm -hmm. maybe going on a walk and going to sleep and I was doing that every single day and it was great I got so much work done <laughs> for two months until I completely burnt out and then I couldn't do any work for like six months after that so it's really interesting to think because there's a record of that there's a record of me saying this is what you should do if you want to get shit done because that's what I believed at the time because <laughs> it was working but it just didn't work very long <laughs> and it kind of destroyed me in the process but yeah uh, yeah so the word Productivity for me is like is it's it's definitely a strange one. I would m much rather lean towards like the idea of mindful creation. Even I absolutely agree with you. And the reason why I use the term mindful productivity is because I do want to help people who are falling prey to what productivity is being used at at the moment or described at. So for me, it's a lot easier to be able to help people who are looking for productivity solutions by using this term right. and telling them, look, actually, there is an alternative approach. So when I talk about mindful productivity, I talk a lot about creativity uh, because I see yep. 
the producing aspect as more of a creation aspect. But I think it's very important to meet the people you want to help where they are. And in my case, a lot of the people I want to work with and help are in the self-help uh, of, the, of the bookstores looking for something to help them become more productive and not realizing that there's probably nothing wrong with them and that it's really more about probably being a bit kinder to themselves, listening to their thoughts and their emotions a little bit more, practicing self-reflection, being more present, all sorts of things that have nothing to do with waking up at 5 a.m. and applying crazy complicated productivity methods. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, great. Well, um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is something that... Um, something that you mentioned to me personally before, and I know that you've written a lot about is combinational creativity. Do you want to open up that term a bit? Yes, definitely. Um, so combinational creativity is the academic term. Another term that I really like for it is idea sex. It's the idea of <laughs> combining ideas together. Um, so they have baby ideas and there are lots of different ways to, to do this, but at, at its core, the idea of commissioner creativity is is kind of like, you know how we have this um, this very popular concept of the inspired artist that has a muse whispering ideas into their ear and then they're writing a great poem. I, there's, there's a variation of this in almost every culture. The idea that yeah. inspiration uh, just comes to you and whether you have it or you don't so whether you're either you're a creator or you're not a creator and there's nothing to do about it because it's the muse that decides whether they're going to come and visit you or not and combinational creativity is about saying that no it's absolutely not how things work there's a quote actually from a writer I can't remember who it was I think William Inch I think uh, that said that originality is undetected plagiarism. And I really like it because this is this captures what combinational creativity is about. It's really about knowing that all ideas are born from taking two or more existing ideas and combining them together to create something that looks completely new, but that is really just, again, a combination of existing knowledge that was already there. Yeah. And how do, how do you, I mean, because you're uh, going back to your PhD and, and you sort of being between the worlds of academia and, and, and I don't know what you call it. Is this the tech industry or is this some other kind of industry or no industry at all? I don't know, but you know what I mean. Uh, your business or businesses and um, academia, how do you see this idea of combinational creativity or at least taking elements of of like the world of academia and of the world of business. Um, like what's your relationship between the two? Do you feel like you have to shift gears a lot? Is it pretty smooth between um, the two places or, and, and do they help sort of like foster and grow one another? Um, personally, I found it really helpful to have one foot in each of these different worlds. Um, there's, like, there's like different ways to practice combinational creativity and I do it every day, but one of them, for example, is the problem-driven approach. You have a problem and uh, you're trying to find an idea, uh, a way it's been solved in another area and see if that would work for this problem. And so for me, like that's that's been really, really helpful because I know that something in academia that's done very badly, for example, is project management. 
Uh, it's just, it's, mm. it's crazy. Like it's deadlines. That's a concept that sometimes I feel like, um, doesn't exist. Like either you receive those crazy deadlines, like, oh, this is due tomorrow. Or, or they're very, they're so far away that people really struggle to set milestones. And then it's, it's just yeah. basically the same effect because one big like six months later, you find yourself scrambling, trying to get all of the the material together to submit for a grant or, or something like this. So um, because I've worked in tech before and I've worked both at a big company and at a startup, project management is something that comes very naturally to me now and that I've been able to to bring to the work that I'm doing in academia. So I have spreadsheets for everything. <laughs> I'm tracking everything. I have deadlines. Uh, I tag people in them to let them know. So this is due this date. And then we need to do that. And let's do a little catch up on this. Um, weekly reviews, uh, all of these different kind of things that I used to do already from my industry work that I can bring to academia. Yeah. And from academia to the work that I'm doing in more of the industry side of things um great yeah and i guess something um else that has to do with that that i've noticed a lot from starting to kind of be more involved with academia myself is the awareness of associations like understanding uh when you're you know reading papers and and drawing drawing like paying a lot of attention to different references and different thinkers and different authors and different ideas and noticing that those same kind of ideas come out or thinkers come out or authors come out in different forms in different papers, even if they might be talking about a different subject, has made me pay so much more attention when actually building products and creating things like more practically speaking to how interconnected everything else is. So it's kind of, again, like a meta weird thing, like thinking about being aware of associations like directly within, for example, research and then making, making you know, making that myself more self-aware of of those associations when thinking about um building products definitely it, it's also something that you probably notice when you're reading yeah when you're reading different books it's just i really like this feeling that you just described because it's almost as if you were making different researchers or different authors have a conversation together because yes. you notice all of the yes you know what i mean right you notice all yeah. of these little patterns and you see how different authors have talked about a similar topic, but with a different angle. And I find it even more fascinating when it's different works that were written sometimes hundreds of years apart. And you see these things coming up in different ways, approached um, with a different perspective. And then you kind of become part of that whole web of knowledge because you take exactly. these ideas and then you implement them in your product yourself with your own little twist on it. So I do find it fascinating. I agree. Yeah. And I would say that that feeling is like quite unbeatable when it comes to feelings in the world. And <laughs> it's something that we've actually talked a lot about on this podcast with different people and um, and something that I feel extremely strongly about is that you know, this sort of like pursuit of knowledge, especially sort of in a modern modern environment, considering the type of world we exist in and, and the type of lives we live is the, the pursuit of the pursuit of knowledge and ideas and the ability to be able to think and to create new ideas is like absolutely the most fundamental block when it comes to building my identity or having kind of any kind of self-confidence or or understanding of my position in the world. I don't know if that's something that resonates with you. Oh, definitely. I uh, um, I remember I was uh, I was at a lecture 
at school that was a couple of years ago, three years ago. And um, there's a quote from a professor that I thought was amazing, but which was that um, after nature, the second strongest force in the universe is human imagination, because there's only nature and our imagination that is pos that is able to create things completely from scratch. Um, yeah. And again, not from scratch in the sense like it's the same with nature, you know, it's all about transformation, etc. But we can come yeah. up with new things. And when you look at what nature creates sometimes and what the human mind is able to create, these are absolutely remarkable. So yeah. I, I totally agree with you. It's, it's absolutely amazing. The ability to come up with new ideas, to innovate, to imagine is really powerful and same as you, to me, a core part of my identity. Yeah. And it's somehow also like a feeling of safety and belonging, which is very comforting. Um, it's something that I think a lot about when I'm struggling. It's like, okay, well, at the end, at the end of the day, I can still have my ability to imagine. Yes. Um, well, maybe that might be a good note to end on, unless there's anything else that you would like to add, um, anything you'd like to say to our audience, anything you have coming up that we should be paying attention to. Um, no, I think that was a, a great way to end this. I'm very excited for your launch. Uh, as you said, like by the time this comes out, this is probably going to be live. So I'm very excited to try Sane. And uh, that was a really good conversation. So thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this.